Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. This is Rob Breckenridge. Roger off this week. If you missed today's show, we talked about the Mark Merritt case. He's the guy who ran the Best Gore website, this website that posted that infamous Luca Magnata video. He pled guilty this week to obscenity charges. But what is obscenity? How do we define it? And when does it cross the line? Also, a conversation about autonomous vehicles. They're coming. Are Canadians ready for them? You can listen to the show weekdays, 9.30 to 12.30, right here on News Talk 770 and Newstalk770.com. All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. My name is Rob Breckenridge. Roger Kincaid off this week. Uh, thanks for being with us. 974-8255 is our telephone number. And we're going to talk about self-driving cars. Uh, they're coming. I, I don't know when we'll actually be in a world where self-driving cars are the norm whether the majority of vehicles on the road, but are people eager? I, I was reading an article. I mean, there, there, there's uh, maybe a parallel to elevators. There, there used to be someone who would manually operate the elevator, and people were kind of leery about this notion of you just get in and press the button yourself and it goes. Is it the same with cars? That it would just will wonder why we ever bothered driving these things, or are people reluctant? You're putting a lot of faith in that autonomous vehicle. I guess you're putting a lot of faith in yourself and the others on the road, though, too. So we'll talk about that after uh, 11.30. Charlie Gillis from McLean's Magazine will join us. We will get into this this tipping issue coming up uh, after 12 o'clock, whether all-in pricing makes sense, whether that should be the norm. I want to begin in this hour uh, with some conversation about Mark Merrick and his website, bestgore.com, which is still up and running. I did check that this morning to make sure that that was the case. I uh, didn't go any further than that, uh, although there was one ad on the website that was probably a little uh, not safe for work. Um, but just to so make sure the site's still there. This kind of reminds me of, I remember, you know, when I was in high school, which, sad to say, was, was before the Internet, that uh, there, there used to be these uh, videos, uh, Faces of Death, that went around. I remember one friend of mine had one of these copies of this video, and it was like, oh, wow, this is, you know, really bad stuff. And these were supposedly snuff videos, but although it seemed like most of it was fake. Uh, obviously, now with the Internet, there's a lot of stuff out there. You know, LiveLeak.com is kind of like YouTube, but LiveLeak sort of specializes in uh, maybe the kind of stuff that YouTube wouldn't allow. And bestgore.com is kind of the same thing. Now, bestgore itself and supporters of the website say, you know, this is needed. This shines a light on what's really going on in the world, and the alternative is to censor this stuff. If there's a video of a bomb going off or a bomb being dropped on someone or a, a gang member executing another gang member or any of this stuff. Now, this is the public record, and this is what's going on in the world, and why should it be hidden? As ugly as it is, sometimes things need to be exposed. We saw it this week with the Sami Yatim case and this Toronto police officer who was bizarrely acquitted of murder but convicted, found guilty of attempted murder. 
So much of our understanding of what happened in that case is because there's a video of Sammy Yatim dying. It's a very disturbing video. But obviously that was widely shared and without consequence. When it came, though, to the video of Luca Magnata murdering and dismembering and desecrating the body of June Lin, that takes it to another level. Luca Magnata, as we recall, not only did he murder June Lin, he sent body parts uh, to politicians in Ottawa and elsewhere. And he sent the video to Mark Merrick, who put it on bestgore.com. Now, it's unclear whether Mark Merrick knew what it was, knew whether it was real at the time. It's unclear whether he took it down on its own. It was eventually taken down. What we do know about it is that, uh, well, A, there were people who saw it on the website and tried to call police attention to it. This was at a time when we were trying to find Luca Magnata. And Toronto police later had to defend themselves to accusations that they were slow to react, that they ignored these warnings. And that, ironically, the video, the posting of the video, it seems, did help us find Luca Magnata. It's an incredibly gruesome and gory and horrific video. And as a result, Mark Merrick was charged under Canada's obscenity laws, was charged with corrupting morals. Now, by strict reading of the law, this video, this kind of a video, certainly matches that. It's hard to get around it. There's a lot of other stuff on bestscore.com. There are a lot of other websites out there with this kind of stuff on them. So are we going to go around policing all of this? Uh, joining us for some thoughts uh, on all this, very pleased to welcome to the program, uh, Professor Stephen Penny is with the uh, Faculty of Law at the University of Alberta. Uh, Professor, great to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. Good morning, Rob. All right. The concept of corrupting morals seems odd, maybe almost a little antiquated, but uh, that, that's part of the overall obscenities, or yeah, the obscenity section of the, the Criminal Code of Canada, correct? That's right. Yeah. So, you know, we still use perhaps what might be considered antiquated language uh, in this provision, but uh, really this case is about obscenity. This is a classic obscenity case, and the actual uh, Criminal Code provision that Mr. Merrick was charged with is the obscenity provision. Okay. And... Do we have a pretty clear definition of what obscenity is? I don't think we've ever had an entirely clear (laughs) definition of what obscenity is. It's probably a fallacy to think we ever will. Uh, But, uh, you know, we have some guidance, uh, to be sure, from the Supreme Court of Canada as to what kinds of materials at least approach the line of of being obscene. Now, we've often talked about obscenity, and that's often meant to, to imply... You know, it's sexual content. It's often been used in the context of pornography, but yeah. the, the criminal code is specific about uh, images and videos that are of a violent nature. Well, it is and it isn't. And when you combine the wording of the code with the way that that uh, provision has been interpreted by the Supreme Court of Canada, then you get some more guidance as to what counts as being obscene. And it's certainly clear now that mere graphic depictions or explicit depictions of sexual activity or sexual body parts are not obscene. So there certainly isn't an equivalence between, you know, pornography in the broad sense of that term and criminally obscene material. We need to have not only sexually explicit depictions, but sexually explicit depictions that are combined with uh, high levels of violence or extremely degrading or dehumanizing sort of portrayals or depictions. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because a couple of years ago there was a case involving a, a Quebec 
filmmaker and special effects artist, uh, Remy Couture, uh, who had his own website, Inner Depravity, or Inner Depravity. And uh, a lot of people actually were convinced that the videos on his website were real. Uh, they were very violent. They, they were pornographic. But what ended up working in, in his favor is that it wasn't real. And, and is there a distinction in the law? There isn't a clear distinction between, you know, real acts or simulated acts, and there may be sort of a fuzzy line between those two things in some cases of, of pornography. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that if you're depicting acts of serious violence that are actually happening to people, people are being harmed, then the court is much, much more likely to find that the line has been crossed as compared to simulated material. But that's not to say that the simulation or acting or special effects will insulate the material from, from being classified as, as obscene. Mm-hmm. It's a judgment call that the court has to make uh, in terms of whether or not you have sort of extreme depictions of violence or, as I said, that kind of extremely degrading or dehumanizing um, you know, picture of something that's happening. Well, and, and this Luca Magnata video is, is, about, is about as bad as it can get. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And, you know, if we're going to justify having an obscenity provision, then this case is probably not close to the line, right? I think so that what this case raises is whether we ought to have any restriction on pornography, at least any restriction that uh, involves the possibility of a criminal uh, conviction. But if we are going to accept that we that some things cross the line, that, that some material is obscene, then this is probably not the best case to, to argue that uh, that this doesn't fall within the definition of obscenity. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty awful. I think everyone agrees on that. It's just, you know, I mean, where that line is. We, you know, As I mentioned in the introduction, we have a video of uh, 18-year-old Sammy Yatim being arguably murdered uh, on a Toronto street, and that video is disturbing, and, and that video was widely shared. Sure, sure. And one of the things, and again, it's not a complete answer to this problem by any means. But one of the things to point out about the obscenity provisions is that they contain a defense of public good. So no matter how extreme or how violent a depiction might be, if there's a credible argument that the public interest uh, would you know, demand or favor having this material be available, then there can't be a conviction. Indeed, if there's any reasonable doubt about that, then that doubt has to has to go to the benefit of the accused. Mm-hmm. So there's always that safety valve that, you know, we don't judge this exclusively on the basis of how awful or extreme it is, but if it has some sort of public benefit to it, then it uh, it doesn't count as being obscene. Right, which is interesting. Now, you know, and now look, I mean, Mark Merrick pled guilty, so it's not as though a judge has found him guilty. He's the one who pled guilty, which is an important point here, and I, I don't know how a judge would have viewed that. Certainly, what what you read on the best score website and their defenders of their best score that make this argument that that it is serving a, a public good that it's shining a light on this this awful stuff that exists in our world I, I think they're they're trying to make that argument but that's especially with something like this that that's a tough argument to make I think it's a tough argument to make I mean it's not completely implausible on its face. I mean, there may be some benefit, as you mentioned in your introduction, in this case, uh, incidentally, perhaps, but it did lead to, you know, the, the furthering of the investigation and the discovery of, of what happened by the police. Uh, so, you know, I'm not going to dismiss that argument out of hand, uh, although I think probably it's fair to be somewhat skeptical of the motivations of most of the people who are looking at these videos or, or the publishers themselves, that this might be more accurately characterized as sort of voyeuristic or thrill-seeking or 
perhaps uh, fulfilling some sort of um, sexual uh, preference in terms of the kinds of material that might be stimulating to some people as opposed to uh, disseminating information uh, as a sort of media outlet, as a kind of WikiLeaks um, in uncovering depravity or wrongdoing uh, and bringing it to the attention of the authorities. I think there are other ways to do that, um, and I'm not sure that that's the main purpose behind sites right. like this. Yeah, I mean, calling it best score, it, it comes across as that you're you know, relishing this this stuff, right? You're reveling in this kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment. Uh, so, given that we've we've had these two cases so close together, the, the Remy Couture case, where he was also charged with corrupting morals and acquitted, and, and this one, uh, where the individual pled guilty, may, may well have been found guilty, as we, we in this internet age where there's so much of this stuff out there, and sometimes it's unclear where it came from. Sometimes it's going to be unclear whether it's even real or not. Um, does this give us any kind of guidance on on how we we move forward on this? Well, you know that's a, that's a really interesting question, and I don't know that there's a simple answer to it. I think it's probably fair to say that our tolerance for this kind of material uh, has increased over the past few decades. So. There's no question that there's probably a lot of material out there, out there. Uh, indeed, probably enormous quantities of material out there that are arguably obscene, and police and prosecutors don't do anything about it, uh, and they exercise their discretion not to pursue, pursue those kinds of prosecutions because they don't think it's a worthwhile use of their limited resources. And perhaps that's for the good. Uh, mm-hmm. Given that obscenity is difficult to define, given the ubiquity of this material on the Internet and the difficulty in policing it and all the kinds of procedural hurdles and logistical problems that you alluded to, you know, I think that police and prosecutors are probably wise to focus only on the most extreme and horrific types of cases. And, uh, you know, that's not to justify the you know, continued existence of obscenity provisions, and there is a strong case to be made that perhaps we'd be better off without any kind of prohibition on obscenity. But if we're going to have one, then I think it's wise for police and prosecutors to use their discretion uh, you know, very judiciously and to bring these prosecutions only in very rare and extreme cases. And here's the other question I, I still struggle with. Um, you know, and someone brought this up earlier and said, you know, if this was your loved one in, in this video being murdered, you might you know, have a, a different kind of view on it. But I just wonder if Mark Merrick's a criminal, if he's committed a crime, who's the victim? Well, that's always a question that's raised in the context of, you know, expressive material. So if you're talking about freedom of expression, it becomes very difficult to, in many cases, You'll find tangible, concrete harms. Now, in this case, it might not be so difficult because you have an actual victim uh, who is being murdered. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, in other cases, it becomes more contentious. So you have the phenomenon of, of prosecutors putting experts on the stand, trying to demonstrate through social science that there are tangible harms in terms of the depiction of vulnerable groups, such as women. Um, obviously, it's an easier case to be made uh, for child pornography, but right. for adult pornography or obscenity, you know, it's, it's never been definitively established whether overall it's a good thing or bad thing for society to have this material out there. And so it becomes a, a value judgment as to whether or not we think this is degrading, exploitative, whether the people who view this material might be more inclined uh, to do antisocial things, uh, perhaps even to engage in, in criminal conduct, or whether it perhaps is a release valve for certain people and may actually do more good than harm, 
or whether it's neutral overall, we really don't have a good handle on, uh, you know, whether this is, you know, whether one of those arguments is superior to another. We don't have the evidence, uh, and therefore we're left to the court sort of giving some deference to Parliament's choice that at least some of this material does cross the line, and they have to do the best job that they can in attempting to draw that line. All right. Uh, great insight, Steve. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. You're very welcome. All right. Steve Penny is a uh, professor of law at the University of Alberta. Some thoughts from him on this case and the guilty plea in Edmonton yesterday. However, uh, let me read this statement. Uh, this is from Vasily Kirov, who's an editor at bestscore.com, uh, sent this statement to Vice News. Uh, this is before the guilty plea yesterday. It read, quote, Mark intends to plead guilty. Well, normally the guilty plea means admission of guilt. This is only true if prosecution is criminal, not political. Since Mark's prosecution is political, his admission of guilt is really an admission that his human rights will not be respected anyway, and he's not going to get a fair trial no matter what he does. So there is no point in going forward with it. Is Mark Merrick guilty of a crime? Should Mark Merrick be put in jail for what he did? which is posting that video on his website. 974-8255. We're back with more right after this. All right, Skin Kater Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Rob Breckenridge with you. Roger's off for a few days. We'll get into the tipping debate after uh, 12 o'clock and the suggestion that restaurants go to all-in pricing. Or we know up front what we're getting paid. Servers know up front what they're getting paid. Or we know what we're paying. They know what they're getting paid as opposed to what we have now. I want to talk right now, though, about autonomous vehicles. The technology keeps improving. We keep getting closer to the first commercially available autonomous vehicles. The technology's still got a bit of a way to go, and there are questions about how these vehicles will handle certain situations. But it's coming. And it seems like the kind of thing maybe that we'll be playing catch-up on when it comes to the, the insurance side, the regulatory side, uh, planning, designing roads and, and systems for these vehicles. But they're coming. In fact, earlier this month, uh, U.S. President Barack Obama uh, set aside $4 billion for further research on autonomous vehicles. Uh, we're already seeing a lot of this technology in vehicles, and it's all designed to keep us safer. And there's certainly the potential that... Self-driving vehicles will save a lot of lives. This could be a huge net benefit to society. But it's a big, big change. And how leery are people? How leery are Canadians? Especially Canadians that are used to, you know, winter driving and all of that. How leery are Canadians about self-driving vehicles? Uh, joining us for some thoughts, pleased to welcome to the program, uh, Charlie Gillis, writes from McLean's Magazine, has an interesting piece on this very question, McLean's.ca. Charlie, welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Uh, so what's happening on this front in, in Canada? Are we just kind of sitting back and waiting and uh, all of the work on this being done uh, in, in the United States? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that, actually. Um, you know, obviously all of the uh, developmental and research work is being done in the United States, um, or uh, the lion's share of it, by companies like Google. But, um, you know, uh, the Ontario government in particular has been pretty uh, aggressive about pursuing the idea of getting self-driving cars tested on its roads and, you know, putting seed money into the development of self-driving and autonomous vehicles and also vehicle to vehicle communication which is which is you know um i think a, a piece of the self driving car picture but 
you know, as everybody I think is aware, is it also has potential for just conventional cars as well. So, you know, there is a fair bit going on in Canada right now. You have uh, municipalities as well that are that are looking at it. The mayor of Saskatoon piped up the other day and said, "Look, we're building a bunch of infrastructure. We should really be thinking about autonomous vehicles and how that infrastructure is going to accommodate autonomous vehicles." And you have even like uh, the, the town of Stratford, Ontario, of course, best known for the Shakespeare Festival, also wants to be a petri dish for the testing of self-driving cars. Um, they have uh, the town is is wired with with wireless technology, um, and they make a big deal out of that. And I think that they're hoping that you know that this will attract some companies that want to to try out self-driving cars on their roads. So there is a fair bit going on, and and I think that you know people who live in cities like Calgary and Vancouver and Toronto and Montreal, uh, you might want to pay attention to this because I, I really do think that certainly in our lifetimes, Rob, and, and, and in our children's lifetimes, this is going to become a reality. There will be cars driving themselves around on the roads. Well, yeah, and we're probably just a few years away from the first of those being available, but in terms then of it being the norm, in terms of it being the majority of vehicles on the road, is that, would you say, decades away? Yeah, I would think, you know, certainly more than a decade. And, and, you know, I've heard projections of up to 40 years before this really becomes uh, a very, very common thing or, or, uh, you know, a a situation where they're the majority of the cars on the roads. You know, there's a lot of concern out there, and I'm sure you've read it, that this is essentially a way for, you know, the state to get into the driver's seat of our cars and and to, you know, to to run our transportation lives. And um, I, I think that those concerns are overblown. I really do. You know, I mean, we're pretty protective of our ability to move around and determine where we're going to go and when and how. And, I, you know, I would be shocked if Canadians were willing to surrender those kinds of freedoms uh, very quickly. So I think the upshot of that is, is that, you know, we're going to have steering wheels and brake pedals and gas pedals in our cars for some time to come. Now, we may have those old hallmarks of, of conventional automobiles uh, in front of us, but at the same time, those cars might be equipped with self-driving capability if we want that. And, you know, that's already something that, that, that Tesla is offering in limited form with its uh, new and very expensive vehicles. And, you know, and they're also trying to get uh, mid-market versions, mid-market models um, uh, on sale as quickly as they can. So, yeah, it's it's right on the horizon. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I, I got a daughter who's about to turn 13, so I'm hoping that we're on about a three- or four-year time frame on these. But uh, it, it sort of speaks to that perception that maybe uh, people have. I, I think, you know, there's a lot of benefit to this. Uh, I certainly think it would make roads safer. Uh, and, you know, there, there's obviously concern about young drivers and the, the learning curve they got to go through. But I, I'd still be uncomfortable. I, I think the first time if I got behind the wheel and knowing that I'm not in control of that wheel and this vehicle is driving me, there's just that that sense that that's just not right. There's something uneasy, an uneasy feeling that I have. Is that, is that the sense of where you think Canadians are at? Uh, you know, uh, I hear you loud and clear, and I had that same sense of uncanniness, and I should tell you that I have actually ridden in Google's self-driving car. I went okay. down to Mountain View, California last uh, summer and had a chance to uh, to ride around for, you know, uh, I think it was less than half an hour overall, but through the streets of, of uh, Palo Alto there, 
And it is a, you know, the, at the very beginning, it is a truly uncanny feeling. The car takes off on its own. It makes a right turn all by itself. It comes up to a stop sign. It stops. Um, it sees, you know, a cyclist on, say, on the, uh, you know, on the side of the road, and it swings wide to avoid the cyclist. Uh, it's a little bit like if you were riding with a grandparent who was very cautious, uh, mm-hmm. it's a little bit like that. But the funny thing is what I found, Rob, is that, is that it was amazing to me how quickly uh, all that kind of anxiety and, and fear fell away. So for the you know almost one-third of Canadians uh, who tell pollsters that, that this notion would make them feel anxious and powerless as opposed to free and, and uh, happy, um, you know, I would say you might surprise yourself once you actually get into one of them because it is just like being squared around by a taxi driver. Well, yeah, and it, so we haven't seen a lot of surveys on, on how people feel about these, and so that's why they, these numbers that you reported on are, are pretty interesting. Do we see a, a, an age gap? Are, are younger Canadians more I don't know, ready to embrace this technology than, than older Canadians, or is there a difference? Yeah, there is an age gap, and, and it's a really important one. Um, the, the company that did this, uh, GFK, it's a big uh, market research firm worldwide, and in addition to uh, testing the attitudes of Canadians on this issue, they wanted to look at, at the way people in other countries feel. And, you know, what they found uniformly is that older people feel more uncomfortable about, with the idea than uh, what they call leading-edge consumers, which is uh, a nice euphemism for young, technologically savvy people. Um, so, you know, you get uh, a quarter, almost a third of young, technologically savvy people who say, you know, I, I actually really uh, I really think this is going to make me feel happy and relaxed and free. Um, and roughly the same or a little more of, of older people saying, uh, you know, that, that it would make them feel the opposite. Way, I think that there's a lot of crossover. I think that you know that a lot of those people would say, I could imagine it f- making me feel both ways. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is, is that yeah, uh, you know, young people who, as we know, are less and less inclined to go and get driver's licenses, who, as we know, m- you know, more of them live in cities. Uh, they are a lot more open to this idea than it seems that you know th- those from from my generation and my parents' generation are, and that's you know I th- that's a fairly important thing, and I really believe that that's what the major automakers are looking at as they go ahead and develop self-driving cars. Well, yeah, and I mean, you even saw uh, you know GM put a lot of money into this company Lyft, which is you know a competitor of Uber, because GM seems to be thinking that maybe that this is going to result in a different model of ownership that people will essentially you know rent vehicles and. Instead of own vehicles. Yeah, and I, we're, we're headed in that direction, as you know already, with uh, sharing services like Zipcar and AutoShare. And mm-hmm. you might have noticed that the rental car companies are getting into the, the car sharing business in, in limited form. So yeah, we are. Uh, you know, it's certainly in the cities we're heading for a different ownership model. And I also believe that that's where the automakers really believe the future of, of autonomous vehicles lies. And that is in fleets, like things like taxis or, uh, you know, service vehicles that drive around uh, goods, uh, you know, and, you know, that you would want summoned on a, on a you know, very quick basis. So this is, uh, this is exactly the kind of, of economic sector that would be suited to autonomous vehicles. 
And you could imagine that being kind of the thin end of the wedge. You could imagine that being uh, where this gets started because people aren't going to feel emotionally attached to it in any way. And I have a, if I can just add a, a kind of a, a personal belief about this, and this is completely unscientific, but it's based on my own intuition. And that is that uh, it's my sense that, that people don't attach their personalities to their, to their cars the way they might have done in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, because the cars don't have that kind of personality that they did. The, the big three automakers developed cars even when they were copying each other. They were, you, what you were driving seemed to say a whole lot about you, whether it was a Mustang convertible or, or a sedan or a station wagon. And I see a lot more uniformity in the vehicles now. And so while it tells you a lot about what social class you're in, what, you know, the, the, the brand and, and the, the model of car you're driving, it doesn't tell you a heck of a lot about, about the person's personality or how they see themselves. And, you know, honest to God, like, uh, if that's going to be the case, if that's the way young people tend to view cars as nothing more than a way to get from A to B, well, then, yeah, I think that that necessarily suggests that the, that the uh, ownership model is going to change. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Uh, people can read your piece at mclean's.ca. Charlie, thanks for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Charlie Gillis uh, writes from McLean's Magazine. His piece, Why Canadians Are Wary of Self-Driving Cars. These uh, survey results uh, show that the idea makes us feel anxious and powerless. But young people really seem to like the idea. Although someone texted earlier to say, uh, as a senior, and, you know, the question of not being able to drive at some point, that a self-driving car actually is really empowering. I'll tell you what, let's take a break here. We're going to come back. I want to get to some of the texts coming in on this. How do you feel about self-driving vehicles? Now, someone else texted, I mean, there, there are the privacy issues maybe that come up, and that's happening with technology anyway, regardless of whether we're driving the vehicle or it's autonomous.